All right, guys, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're into the second chapter now. We're, we're doing a study called Meeting Jesus. Now, the whole concept of this study is so that you and I become more intimately aware of who he is and what he wants from us and the relationship that we can have with him. And we can, we can do that through the gospel because the gospel reveals so many things to us about who he is and about his care for you and I and his love for you and I as well as the things that irritate him. And you might be surprised sometimes by the things that irritate Jesus. Now, we have our own concepts, and we'll talk about our wrong thinking here in a moment. But the reality is, is that Jesus is somebody awesome to be aware of. And I think that really is significant for you and I today because in so many ways, I think we've lost sight of who he is in North American Christianity. That's why so many people are leaving or they're done with church because to them church is just religion. It's, it's just ritual. But Christianity was so much more than that. To, to be honest with you, when you think about the early church, I was thinking about this this week. Really for the first 300 years of Christianity, before Constantine the emperor established it as the religion of the empire, there weren't church services that you would, church buildings that you would run to. So it wasn't the service or the music that draws people to faith. Did you understand what I'm saying? It wasn't that that drew people to basically do the most countercultural thing, and that is become a Christian. It wasn't that at all. What was it? It was meeting Jesus, realizing that Jesus is alive, and you can see him in your life. And so that's what we're doing this study about. Now, I think it's also very good for us to do it because we do have to correct some wrong thinking. So I'm going to give you a couple of points here. We, we develop a concept of God that sees him as uninterested in our lives. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? We, we can develop this concept of God that basically he's uninterested in our lives and what he's interested in i'll be honest with you is what we would consider insignificant but that's not true at all we're going to see that today in our passage but it's true that we develop this concept that god is too busy with his agenda and what he wants and he really doesn't have time for me and my stuff do, do, do you know what I'm saying? And we can get that way. Because, all right, so I don't know how your week has been. Everybody have a great week? Some of you haven't. Some of you hasn't been a good month or more. Now, you've tried to share with somebody. Don't you hate this? You try to share with somebody. They're, how you doing? And you tell them. And they're like, what's flipping about it? Oh, okay. Well, you know Hope it goes well. That is not what you were wanting to hear. You were actually wanting someone to empathize with you a little bit. Do you, you know what I'm saying? You were wanting somebody to feel for you. And guess what? When that happens, what do you feel? You feel alone. Do you know what I'm saying? You feel alone. 
And, and, and because that happens on a human level, we think that way with, in terms of how God is with us. God is, God is so busy right now. He's got the economy. He's got the pandemic happening around the world. He's got, he's got this war and that war and this thing and this culture thing and whatever, blah, blah. He's so busy. He doesn't have time for me. We're going to see that today, that there's actually something different here that you and I need to realize about Jesus. Here's the second thing. We overlook the obvious signs that he cares. We get so focused in our wrong thinking about God and about Jesus that when God gives us obvious signs, like, for instance, this gospel and the story we're going to look at here, and I'll give you an example here in a moment, we overlook those things and we continue in our wrong thinking. So, for instance, you know what? We're going to talk about the first miracle today. The first miracle that we know in the Gospels, and that is Jesus making the water into the wine at the wedding at Cana. You've all heard that story, right? Okay. Now, I've heard that story. I've sat through many preachers. And, and, and can I be honest with you? Here's what typically happens. We're not going to do it today, but I'm going to mention to you because it, it kind of lends validity to the point I'm making here. Usually when I've heard this sermon, a good majority of the discussion concerning this passage is trying to help you to understand that we're talking about grape juice. That's what it means by wine here. Now, could it have, I, first of all, it wasn't Welch's. That didn't get made until the 1800s, okay? So don't think Welch's. What it was, I don't know. And it really doesn't matter. Why? Because the guy in 300 AD, when he's reading this, isn't focused on what kind of wine was that? Because they would still be drinking the same kind of thing at that time, whatever it was. He would be looking at what does the story tell me about Jesus and how he's acting and what he's doing. See, sometimes we overlook the obvious things that God's trying to tell us because we get distracted by wrong thinking. So this passage isn't about whether or not you should drink alcohol. It has nothing to do with this passage. It actually has something far greater for you and I to understand about Jesus and about the way that he interacts with you and I. Did you understand what I'm saying? So what we want to do is, is correct our thinking here a little bit today. So let's look at this passage. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12. It's going to be up on the screen. And then we're going to see John's presentation, the Apostle John's presentation of this first miracle and some things that we can learn from it, okay? So look with me. Notice what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour 
has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever you, he says to you, do it. Now when there were six water pots of, now there were six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. He said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mothers, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to see, first of all, the dilemma. There's a problem here, okay? And then we're going to see the reality of Jesus in dealing with the problem, okay? So let's talk about the problem, all right? So, so yesterday was, you know, in, in the Duckett clan was a wedding, okay? So with that wedding, you know, I'm there and Lori's there and uh, one of my sons are there. And so, you know, of course I performed the wedding and then there was the reception and, and it was festivities throughout the evening. That's typical, isn't it, in our culture for a wedding, you know what I'm saying? And it was a wonderful time. Now, let's, I want you to think, put aside your concept of an American wedding, and I want you to think a Jewish wedding. And some of you who are dads who've paid for weddings will probably be very glad this is not the way it is here. What do you mean? Well, there, it's a little bit different. The responsibility for the festivities was on the bridegroom. And so what he would do is, is he would prepare probably an addition on his parents' home or whatever for he and his wife to live. Then he would go and get the bride and then begins the festivities. There'd be one day of festivities at the beginning and then when she would enter into his home and the, wet, and the marriage would be consummated, then it would be followed by, are you ready for this? This is the reception. Seven days, seven days of festivities that the bridegroom is responsible to provide for. Wow! And who would be invited to this? Well, Canaan was, they, they're not even sure where Canaan is. To this day, they don't, they got some ideas. Why would they not find it? Well, it's kind of like a crossroad. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like a crossroad. It's, it's kind of like, where is that? But there, so everybody there would be invited. In fact, they did invite everybody. They invited Mary. Jesus' brother, they invited Jesus, and guess what? Jesus, bring your disciples. So it's a big gathering. So here's what happens. Somewhere in the seven days, probably towards the end of the seven days, they run out of wine. 
Now, you know what that's like if you're hosting an event. And you've got lots of folks, and then all of a sudden you run out of food, right? Or you run out of drink. You know there's some pressure there, right? And it's no different in their time. In fact, let me make two points here. Best laid plans can end up a failure. Best laid plans can end up a failure. That's the first thing I want you to see here. Is that with these folks, they, when you're talking about celebrating for seven days, you just don't, oh, let's go celebrate. These folks had to plan. These folks had to give some thought to food, to festivities, to, to the drink about what people are going to be drinking and everything and making sure provision was there and accounting for everything. In fact, they were so elaborate. Listen, they, had to, they assigned somebody to be the master. That is the host. That's why we read here the master of the feast. He's the one to keep things going the whole time. Did you understand? So this guy was the master of the feast. We already see him mentioned here. And so it's a thing that would be laid out, plans. Have we got enough food? Yep. Are you sure I got enough? Yep. Got everything. Guess what? You find out you don't have enough. Or maybe some wedding crashers showed up. Did you know what I'm saying? We understand that in our culture, right? Some more people showed up you didn't expect. You got to feed them. And you have to because of the laws of hospitality. Now, here's the second point of what you see about the dilemma. The resulting embarrassment and shame is too much to handle. Now, for you and I, you know, if we get invited over to a barbecue and, oh, man, we're going to have the best burgers ever. You need to come to my party. And you go to the party and you show up. Oh, you showed up late. There's half a burger left for you. Now, you know, we may grumble about that, but we're not like holding it against whoever invited. We don't say to them 10 years from now, you remember that party you invited? I only got half a burger at your party. I can't believe you did that. We don't, we don't act that way in our culture, not in their culture. It was an extreme offense to break the laws of hospitality. It would be a total embarrassment and shame that that bridegroom and that family would have to carry in their community for the longest time. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you remember? I mean, we used to have a culture like that. I think we're getting that back now, that when you did something wrong or even was a mistake, you, bear, you bore that shame in the community and people looked at you. Well, I remember when they did that. I can't believe they did that. That was going on there, and it was too much for them to handle. So now that brings us to Jesus and actually to some things that are misunderstood. But let's try to understand what's happening. When you look at verse 3, here's what Mary does. They ran out of wine. Now she's either informing Jesus or she's wanting Jesus to do something about it. Maybe some scholars believe she may have had a connection to the family that was hosting the feast, the bridegroom's family, and, and so she's wanting to protect the family name or whatever. Maybe all she's wanting Jesus to do is, hey, go get your disciples and, and go get some wine. 
Okay, now some assume that maybe she knew who Jesus was. She had an understanding of who he was. She gave birth to him. She heard the prophecy. She heard the angel. But here's how Jesus responds. Jesus responds to her with something that we find totally offensive in our culture. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I'll be honest with you, in, in, in the household I get, grew up in, if my dad heard me call my mom woman, I'd be picking myself up the floor. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because we would say that's not the proper thing to say. Well, actually, in Jesus' culture, he's doing the proper thing. In their culture, they would not express personal affection out loud. And by answering woman, he's actually doing the proper thing. But he's asking a legitimate question. What does this have to do with me? We would say something like that. You know, have you ever had somebody say to you, oh, I can't believe this happened. Well, what's that got to do with me? But Jesus takes it one step further and says, my hour has not yet come. So here's some things. I want you to see four things here that are very powerful for you to see out of this passage. And it doesn't have to do with wine. Okay? Although wine is the miracle. Here's the first one. All right? Even though he has another purpose, he extends grace. When you look at verse 4, look at what he says in verse 4. He says in verse 4, Woman, what does this have... What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What is he expressing there? Jesus is expressing, when he uses that phrase, my hour has not yet come, he uses that several times in the gospel. It refers to his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, his glorification. That's his purpose. His purpose is to do what God sent him to do, and that's die on the cross for you and I. So he has a purpose, all right? But here's what I'm saying. Now, remember the wrong thought I told you that we have sometimes is that we develop, we develop this mindset that God is so busy, he's got his own agenda, his own purpose, that he doesn't have time for me or worry about what's going on in my life. Here's what I want you to see. Look at verse 5. Excuse me, verse 6. Now, there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews according, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now, here's what I want you to see. Even though he's got another agenda, even though he's got another purpose, he did something. Think for a moment. All right, let's grade it on a human scale, okay? All right, so a human scale. Solving world problems. Making sure there's enough refreshments at the party. What's the bigger issue? We would say solving the world problems. That's where you focus. Somebody else can handle the refreshment thing, Right? And that's what Jesus is saying. My purpose is something else. But guess what? He still extends grace. And that's what's so awesome here about this. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? He took care of their refreshment problem. 
That just blows your mind. So here you are, you're going through whatever it is that you're going through in your life. I'm going through whatever it is I'm going in my life. And you're thinking, oh, Lord, do you even have time for me? Yeah, he makes time. He makes time. Isn't that awesome? He makes time and extends grace. Even though he had another purpose, he extends grace. Now, here's, here's the second thing I want you to see. It is amazing, and it's, the point is made in the passage because he's doing two things here. He's showing you where his heart is, and he's also showing you what he doesn't care for. You mean there's something in this passage that he shows you that he doesn't care for? Yeah. I mean, right from the very beginning. Okay, here it is. Look with me. Look at verse 6. Now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. He said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, and they took it. Now look at what it says, verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the wine that was made, the water that was made wine, and did not know, I want you to look at that, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who drew the water knew. Now what's, why, what, what do you mean he didn't know? It isn't just that he didn't know that Jesus made the water into wine. It's where it came from, the pot. What kind of pot are you talking about? We're not talking about your Tupperware pot in the house here, folks. We're talking about, are you ready for this? The bathroom sink. What? This pot, let me tell you what it was, according to their customs, according to the rituals of the day, they had, according to that time, the Jewish customs of that time was is that you would wash your hands ceremoniously before you would eat. And then after you would eat, you would wash your hands ceremonially. And these pots were ceremonial water pots, stone clay water pots that would be used to ceremonially wash your hands so that you would be, are you ready for this, ceremonially clean, not unclean. What does that have to do? It has to do with you being ceremonially clean before God. It's a nice religious exercise. But here's what Jesus does. Jesus takes those pots and he makes wine in them. And there's a reason why they didn't tell the master where it came from. He wouldn't have drank from it. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like telling you, I've got some great wine. Where did it come from? Great grape juice, okay? Where did it come from? Uh, the back sink in the ladies' room. That wouldn't go over well, would it? Did, do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? That's the point here. So here's what I'm saying. Religious rituals and taboos are meaningless to him. Listen, I want you to see what's going on here. He's got time for you and your problem. We've already seen that. But let me tell you what he doesn't have time for. Is meaningless ritual 
that's supposed to give you some sort of standing with guess who? Him. That tells you what he thinks about it, right? That's the reality of Jesus here. Do you understand? So let's, let's get back to our wrong thinking. Our wrong thinking is, God, God, you are so worried about what I wear on Sunday morning, but you're not worried about my problem. Isn't that what we communicate in some of our churches? You are so worried about this, that, or another, about religious stuff, but you're not worried about this bill I've got to pay, and I don't know where I'm going to get the money from it. Or this health issue, or the doctor gave me this report. Or I've got this crisis in my family. Or this is happening at work, and I can't take that pressure anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you see how wrong our thinking has become in cloud? What happened to our thinking? We've been messed up with religion, and we forgot the relationship. And what this passage is talking about, quit focusing on whether or not it's alcohol or not. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is Jesus had time to do something about a problem that would have been a major embarrassment for somebody. But let me tell you what he didn't have time for. Religious rituals and taboos. That's what we see here. We're actually going to see it extended a little bit further next week when we look. The very next thing that John shares with us is he cleanses the temple. This is where Jesus is at. So here's what I want you to see. Why is he doing this? This is the point. Now, when you get to verse 11, look at verse 11 now. John kind of wraps this all up, this very first miracle, and tells you why God does what he does. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. This is why God does what he does in your life. Look at what it says. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glories, his glory, and his disciples believed in him. All right, so two things I want you to see here about the reality of Jesus. Here's the first one. The purpose of his actions is to manifest his glory. What do you mean manifest his glory? What are you talking about, George? It's to show you who he is. Seriously, can anybody just do this? Can anybody change the molecular composition of water into something that you can drink as a refreshing drink, whatever it was at that time? No, nobody can do that. I mean, we've come and tried to do that. We can't do it. He's doing, he's doing these things to show you who he is when he shows up in your life. And some of you, it maybe has been a long time, but you can remember when God showed up in your life and he answered a prayer. What did he do by answering that prayer? He was showing you and I that he's God and he loves you and he cares for you. He was manifesting his glory to you. Do you understand? That's the whole purpose of him doing what he's doing. is to show you and others that he's God. Here's the second thing I want you to see final thing it happens so that we can believe listen Jesus he did this 
for that bridegroom, for that family, yes. But you want to know who else he did it for? For the sake of his disciples. So that they could believe who he was. So they could have confidence that they were following the living Messiah. Look, when God shows up in your life and he answers prayers, he's just not fulfilling your wish list. Do you understand what I'm saying? He is showing up to show you that he's your heavenly father and that you belong to him and that he cares for you. Did you understand what I'm saying? That is awesome. That's what this passage is about. That's why we've got to change our thinking. Do you understand what I'm saying? We've got to get rid of let me say, the stinking thinking and start having the proper thinking. We've got to quit looking at him in a wrong way and start looking at the obvious signs of what he's doing in our everyday life. So think about it. So what do you do? How do you do that, George? Think about this week. What are some obvious things that you've overlooked this week that were evident that it was God that did it? Then you'll begin to have your mind blown. You do care. You do answer prayer. I am important. To be honest with you, Human history is moving to a predetermined point. And that is Jesus coming back. Do you understand that? So everything is moving there. So, and, and to be honest with you, God's not losing sleep over where everything is moving to. He also has lots of time to worry about you and what's going on in your life because he's concerned for you. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's concerned for you. That's the reality of Jesus. Let me pray for you.